So our text this morning is in Hosea chapter 5. And this week and next week I will be bringing our message. And um, I have spent the last few weeks looking at these chapters. And um, let's see today what what the Lord has to bring us. I'll read for us all of um, Hosea chapter 5. Hear this, O priests. Pay attention, O house of Israel. Give ear, O house of the king, for the judgment is for you. For you have been a snare at Mizpah, and a net spread upon Tabor. And the revolters have gone deep into slaughter, but I will discipline all of them. I know Ephraim, and Israel is not hidden from me. For now, O Ephraim, you have played the whore. Israel is defiled. Their deeds do not permit them to return to their God, for the spirit of whoredom is within them, and they know not the Lord. The pride of Israel testifies to his face. Israel and Ephraim shall stumble in his guilt. Judah also shall stumble with them. With their flocks and herds they shall go to seek the Lord, but they will not find him. He has withdrawn from them. They have dealt faithlessly with the Lord, for they have been, uh, for they have borne alien children. Now the new moon shall devour them with their fields. Blow the horn in Gibeah, the trumpet in Ramah, the alarm at Bethaven. We follow you, O Benjamin. Ephraim shall become a desolation in the day of punishment. Among the tribes of Israel, I make known what is sure: the princes of Judah have become like those who moved the landmark. Upon them I will pour out my wrath like water. Ephraim is oppressed, crushed in judgment, because it was determined to go after filth. But I am like a moth to Ephraim, and like dry rot to the house of Judah. When Ephraim saw his sickness and Judah his wound, then Ephraim went to Assyria and sent to the great king. But he is not able to cure you, or heal your wound. For I will be like a lion to Ephraim, and like a young lion to the house of Judah. I, even I, will tear and go away. I will carry off, and no one shall rescue. I will return again to my place, until they acknowledge their guilt, and seek my face, and in their distress earnestly seek me. I have never preached sermon from the book of Hosea. Um, these last few weeks, I've realized why. It's, it's very difficult um, when you preach in, in the New Testament or in some of the major prophets. There are other th- things that you can reference to. Um, the language is, is a little newer and a little easier to understand. Uh, but in Hosea, there are a lot of there's a lot of nuance and there's a lot of subtlety and there's a lot of things that we really lose in translation because we don't know as much about the culture. We don't know much about Hosea. We don't know much about uh, the time in which it was written. So there are, are certain things that there are a lot of opinions about how to translate certain things in in Hosea. Um, particularly in chapter 5. So I'll, I'll do my best today um, with the help of the Lord that we'll uh, have a good understanding of what this passage is 
point is and what it is for us and, and what it tells us about God and about um, his dealings with his people. And I'll apologize to Dale. I'm not doing a traditional Baptist message today. I don't have uh, three alliterative points that I can bring just because of the nature of, of what we're reading today. Um, what we do have is we have two distinct sections where verses 1 through 7 and verses 8 through 15 are kind of parallel. They follow sort of the same format, and they, they each have three warnings and a punishment. And these things, um, my desire today is that I can communicate to you the seriousness with which it was written because these the words that are used are very heavy. And the, the meaning, it's a very serious warning that is being leveled today. Uh, so I, I pray that that comes out and we can see that as we, we read together. Uh, just That's another thing that's sort of lost in the translation is the gravity of the intended words. So I hope that I can convey that this morning. Now let's start with uh, chapters one or verses 1 and 2. Hear this, O priests. Pay attention, O house of Israel. Give ear, O house of the king, for the judgment is for you. For you have been a snare at Mizpah, Mizpah and a net spread upon Tabor. And the revolters have gone deep into slaughter, but I will discipline them. So our warning in this passage today focuses chiefly on the leaders. It focuses on those who, who have authority, those who either are, have are religious leaders with spiritual authority, or they are governmental leaders with governmental authority. And it, and it focuses on three different groups. And the, the first group that we see, oh, hear this, priests. And if you didn't notice, our, our um, message today is entitled, Now Listen. So the point of these opening verses is to get the attention of the, the person that, uh, of the group that Hosea is addressing. But he is saying, Oh, hear this, priests, pay attention. This is, this is significant because if we think of the priests, these are the, obviously these are the, the spiritual leaders, those who are charged with bringing the word of God to his people and, and for bringing discipline to them. But we don't always see that as the case. And in fact, over and over as we follow the, the priesthood all the way from Levi until the time of Christ, we continually see the priesthood failing to do its job. They fail to bring people to God. And one of the, the parallel um, passages of Scripture that I found was from the book of Malachi. And Malachi chapter 2, uh, I'll read for us Malachi chapter 2, verses 1 through 9. Malachi 2, 1 through 9. And now, O priests, this command is for you. If you will not listen, if you will not take it to heart to give honor to my name, says the Lord of hosts, then I will send the curse upon you, and I will curse your blessings. Indeed, I have already cursed them, because you do not lay it to heart. Behold, I will rebuke your offering and spread dung on your faces, the dung of your offerings, and you shall be taken away with it. So shall you know that I have sent this command to you, that my covenant with Levi may stand, says the Lord of hosts. My covenant with him was one of life and peace, and I give them to him. 
It was a covenant of fear, and he feared me. He stood in awe of my name. True instruction was in his mouth, and no wrong was found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness, and he turned many from iniquity. For the lips of a priest should guard knowledge, and people should seek instruction from his mouth. For he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. But you have turned aside from the way. You have caused many to stumble by your instruction. You have corrupted the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of hosts. And so I make you despised and abased before the people, inasmuch as you do not keep my ways, but show partiality in your instruction. So this is, this is from the book of Malachi, and these are really strong words. And they say, you know, I put forth Levi, and he was a man after my heart. He was a man who, who kept my commandments. But not only that, he taught my commandments. And, and you, you heard them. But now you don't bring my commandments to the people. You don't take to heart the things that I teach you. Chiefly, you don't obey. You don't obey my words. And if you don't obey me, then you aren't able to instruct those who are in your charge. So God has put in the in charge put the priests in charge of the spiritual needs of the people and he has given them certain functions and they are not doing that. What do we know about Hosea so far if if we look at in Israel as well as in Judah people are turning from God especially in Israel and the northern kingdom people have put aside God, or they have intermingled in the worship of false gods with them. Um, and we'll see more about that as we go on. But this, this intermingling, and that's the, the whole point of, of Hosea. We have this the metaphor of Hosea taking a, a wife who is unfaithful. It's about the unfaithful attitude and the unfaithful heart of Israel and ultimately of Judah. But in, in the days of, uh, of Malachi, this was a stern warning for the priests, and it sounds very much like what we see today. Um, the priests led the people of God astray and even led them to false gods. Um, we'll get to in a minute, but Dale talks about Jeroboam and about how he, he wanted to make ease for, his, for the people of the northern kingdom to worship so they wouldn't go to Judea because he was afraid they would like what they saw and not come back. So he introduced these idols, these golden calves in Dan and Bethel, and installed them and led the people away from God. So this, this leadership, the priests, um, this, is a, this is a very serious job. We read in, in James 1, um, not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, uh, for you know that uh, you who teach uh, will be judged with greater strictness. God takes seriously those that he puts in charge of spiritual welfare of his people. So God is using Hosea to tell his priests to listen up. Who else? Uh, the next one is kind of a tough one. If we read it, uh, it says, O house of Israel. So this can be taken to be a very vague, um, inclusive statement to say, all, all of God's people, all of Israel, all of Judah, um, all of his, uh, all the people that he has called. Um, but that doesn't really fit the text. So if we look in other places where we see uh, this phrase, O house of Israel used, 
a lot of times it's in connotation with those who have influence. And this would be people who had tracts of land. Um, if you want to think of uh, Boaz would have fallen into this category. He, he had lots of land and, and he had field. If you were a, an Israelite and you were poor, maybe you would wind up working in the fields of one of these people that uh, Hosea is addressing. But these were people who, who had some financial stability. They had respect. They had influence. And there are people like that. If I could go to any of the little towns around us now and say, who are the influential families in your town? Probably everyone would name the same two or three people in each of the towns. Um, these are, are, are well-known people. These are, are established. And Hosea is, is calling them out. And he's saying uh, to them, listen up, because I'm addressing you as well. I'm addressing the priests. And also we're, we are addressing the house of Israel. Uh, we have another good parallel passage that it gives us some insight in Jeremiah chapter 2, 26. Jeremiah 2, 26. It says, As a thief is shamed when it is caught, so the house of Israel shall be shamed. They, they, their kings, their officials, their priests, and their prophets. So it lumps this group, the house of Israel, in with kings and officials, priests and prophets, those with authority, those whom God has put in places of authority. Do you ever think of yourself and of the influence that you have with people that are around you? Maybe there are a group of younger people, maybe your own children, that they look to you for influence. How seriously do we take that responsibility? If you do anything in life, if you interact with anyone in life, there will be people that naturally come and gravitate to you that you have the ability to speak into their lives. Do we take that seriously? Do we understand that, that we have been put in that place by God as an influencer of that person? That's a big buzzword today, right? Influencer, basically it's somebody who just makes money on social media, but that they are drawing the culture away. Influencers, whether they're in social media or whether they are own a restaurant in a, in a town and own a car dealership, whatever, they bring influence to people. And Hosea's charge is that you are leading, you're leading people away. You're leading people astray. You're put in this position so that you might lift up people, but you aren't. You, you are bringing shame to God's name and you're leading his people astray. The third group we see is the house of the king, and that's just that. Um, though the king, the princes, those who have, again, it's people who have authority, those who are able to um, govern, who set out laws and rules and make judgments on the people, and we see those all throughout history where God has put people in place. This is who he's talking to. God intends for the spiritual and the governmental authorities to be accountable, but also to draw people to himself. We can look into, we can look at um, a contrast between King Saul, who led Israel primarily to war, led them away from God, and then we contrast that with David, 
who during his reign, he led people in a revival back to God. And he, he drew people to God. He wrote songs and he led in worship and he, his life was characterized by worship of God and all of Israel followed after him for a time. So judgment is for you. Hosea calls out these three people and says, this judgment is on you. Why? For you have made a snare at Mizpah. This is likely Mizpah at Benjamin. Um, there's, it, it's like um, Lexington. You know, there's Lexingtons all over the country. There's Mizpahs all over uh, East Palestine. But this is likely the one at Benjamin and that's probably the case because of the towns he mentions. They're important cities, and they're all kind of together. Um, so you, you have set a snare, or a pit is probably a better translation for that word. You dug a hole for someone to stumble into. Now, is it a fair indictment to say that you have intentionally led these people astray when, when maybe that wasn't your intention, but the reality is, if you are put in a position, then your intention is either to lead people astray or to lead people to God. You, you can't just, because it's not accidental. It's something that we have to be intentional and, and thoughtful of. And they, they were setting snares for people by their failure to lead them out of their sin. We don't have a, a culture of discipline today. We don't discipline people. We allow people in our culture to do what they think is right, to do what, what feels right to them, for them to determine their own reality based on their own desires. And because we allow people to do that, we are culpable in their sin. Those that we have influence over, when they, when they make these kind of errors, if we allow them in their error, we're setting a snare for them. We're laying a net at Tabor. We're, we're spreading out a net, and when they come by, we pull the rope, you know, like you see in the cartoons. Um, and the point is, people are on their journey, but we're, we're trapping them. And this is an apt metaphor. We'll get back to this because there are a lot of really clever things in Hosea 5 that I miss because I'm not as clever as Hosea. And I don't understand a lot of the language, a lot of the things, but this is, this is one of the things because you leaders have ensnared or trapped or enslaved those who follow you. This is a foreshadowing of, of what is to come. So they have set traps for those who follow them. And the next verse, it says the rebels or the, re the revolters are deep into their slaughter. And this is another phrase that uh, it has a lot of different ways that it can be translated. Some of them are, are pretty grim because if you, break the, if you break the text down into its components, if you break the text down into the, the different words and the different ways it can be translated, this essentially could be referring to child sacrifice, which was a big part of um, of, of this culture, this dark culture, the Baals and the Asherahs and, and, and uh, Molech and all these horrible, abhorrent things, these are things that the Israelites were dabbling in. 
they were they were stepping into these things and they were endangering their children it also could mean um just that they are leading them astray that they're leading them on a path of destruction but either way this is we get kind of a visceral response you know when i when i said that the child sacrifice i could feel kind of a palpable response we we react to that as well we should but even if it doesn't refer to to that specifically metaphorically it's it is leading them to destruction and inevitably to captivity for Israel but God's wrath against sin is much greater than being brought into captivity into slavery into any of the the ABCs right the Assyrians Babylonians Chaldeans any of those the the horrors that they brought against Israel they don't even compare to God's wrath against sin it's not even it's not even worth comparing when you think of the wrath of God God's holy wrath against sin it, it's absolute and it's worse than anything that we can imagine and it is above all things what we would want to avoid and the end of verse 2 says but I will discipline all of them and discipline isn't a bad word, but the word it actually is fetters. And if you know what fetters are, it's chains. It's manacles. It's what you use to lead away slaves. So this is, it kind of cleverly goes back and says, well, you, you set snares from those at Mizpah, and you, you, make, um, you lay out nets for those at Tabor to ensnare them and to trap them. Well, guess what? For you, I have fetters. I have bonds that you will be led away in. <clears throat> this is the punishment that comes for you. <clears throat> so these first two verses, Hosea really grips these people that he's addressing. He really gets the attention or aims to get the attention of these leaders to say, I see what you're doing. And it continues on in verse 3. It says, I know Ephraim and Israel is not hidden from me. For now, O Ephraim, you have played the whore. Israel is defiled. How chilling. How chilling is it when we think of, um, of David's revelation that the Lord, there's nowhere I can hide from you in the depths of the earth, the bottom of the sea. There, none of my ways are hidden from you. You see to the core of me everything that I have, every impure thought, every desire. Every wickedness in me, you see it. And God is calling to Israel, and he's saying, I see you. You are not hidden from me. I know what you have done, and as a result, Israel is defiled. God knows Israel intimately, and he knows them in a specific way. He knows them by their sin. He knows what they have done. He knows their heart. He knows the spirit that is within them. However, the, the inverse isn't true. Israel doesn't know God. They don't know God to the extent that they keep his commandments. They know of God. They know of 
how uh, the the priests have laid out that we should worship the liturgy, the sacrifices. They know those things, but they don't have an intimate relationship with him because they're defiled, because they're unclean. So God knows them in a sense that he knows them by their sin, but the relationship is broken. And you can make a parallel with uh, Jesus' words in Matthew 7, 23. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness, for I never knew you. How chilling. Verse 4, their deeds do not permit them to return to their God. For the spirit of whoredom is within them, and they do not know the Lord. So their deeds, what they have done, and we we read about this in a in a few places. I I typically go to um, I typically think of Pharaoh, where Pharaoh hardened his heart. Pharaoh hardened his heart. God hardened his heart. So at a point, God gives us up to a debased and an unclean mind. We continue in sin. We, we practice the sin. It becomes who we are. And God gives us over to those things. They have this spirit of unfaithfulness. It's, I think it's John Owen that says a man will do exactly what it is that he sets his heart to do. Whatever a man desires to do, that's what he will do. Well, how do I do things that please and honor God? I set my desire on those things. I desire for God. I chase after the things of God. I don't chase after the filth. So their deeds do not per permit them to return to God. Can you imagine? God says, your way is shut. All things are possible. All things, you know... God can save anyone. This was a concept that it took me a long time to really understand because I had a lot of bitterness as a young Christian. There were people that I thought could not be saved. Prior to being saved, I was one of them. You'd think I would have figured it out then that, that God can, can save anyone. But he says here, your deeds permit you from returning to God. Why? Because your desires are twisted. You chase after things that, that I hate you have made yourselves defiled. And this, this defilement, uh, King Jeroboam I, this setting of these calves, it led the people of Israel into apostasy and, and a life of immorality. And obviously, um, we, see these, we see these metaphors of, of infidelity. We see these metaphors of unfaithfulness because... Um, Hosea has taken a wife of unfaithfulness. We are unfaithful to God when we don't do his will. When we chase after our idols, that's unfaithfulness to God. If our spouse or a significant other were to cheat on us with someone else, that pain would be unbelievable. That metaphor is used because this is the way that we behave toward God when we're unfaithful to him, we're unfaithful to his commands. So this unfaithful spirit leads to unfaithful practices because they do not know the Lord. Do we know the Lord? 
This is our question that, that we think about today. Is my worship clean? Am I unclean? Do I, do I come to God for things that I desire that he can provide me? Or do I come to God because he's worthy of worship? Do I know him? Verse 5, the pride of Israel testifies to his face. Israel and Ephraim stumble in his guilt. Also, Judah also will stumble with them. Israel's arrogance will be humbled. Judah will also be humbled. We can see kind of building, if you, if you read it all together from Hosea 4 all the way into the end of, of 5, we, we see it's Hosea's desire that uh, Judah wouldn't fall away. His desire would be that they would stay true to God and that they, that they wouldn't follow in the path of Israel. But he knows it's not so. He knows that's not the case. Um, we have, although there are so many parallels that, that we draw in from our own culture. As we look in, in America, we are a very proud people. We thump ourselves on our chest. You know, we pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and we say, we have freedom. We're the greatest country in the world. We have economic success. And we pat ourselves on the back. Instead of acknowledging that God has blessed us in these ways and he hasn't blessed us with all these financial trappings so that we can enjoy them, he's blessed us with them so we can bless other people. That's what our joy is in, is in serving and doing the will of God. But we have these these high-minded morals that we don't even hold to. And what's the result of that? If we look around, our, our country is, is devolving and decaying rapidly, and it seems like it's happening all of a sudden right before our eyes, but it's been happening all along. It's been a, a slow burn. So Hosea desires that, that Judah be spared. He knows this is in vain. Um, this points to what is promised for Judah in Ezekiel 23. All of Ezekiel 23 is extremely relevant for today's passage. So if you want to go home and read it, particularly 4 and 5, but I'm going to read 23, 28 through 35. Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will deliver you into the hands of those whom you hate, into the hands of those whom you have turned in disgust, and they shall deal with you in hatred and take away all the fruit of your labor and leave you naked and bare and the nakedness of your whoring shall be uncovered. Your lewdness and your whoring have brought this upon you. Because you have played the whore with nations and defiled yourself with their idols, you have gone the way of your sister. Therefore, I will give her cup into your hand. Thus says the Lord, you shall drink your sister's cup that is deep and large, and you shall be laughed at and held in derision, for it contains much. You will be filled with drunkenness and sorrow, a cup of horror horror and desolation the cup of your sister samaria you shall drink it and drain it and gnaw at its shards and tear at your breasts for i have spoken declares the lord god thus says the lord god because you have forgotten me and cast me behind your back you yourself must bear the consequences of your lewdness and whoring so hosea knows this hosea has this inkling he doesn't desire it but it's the reality that Judah is going the same way. Verse 6, With their flocks and their herds they shall go and seek the Lord, but they will not find him. He has withdrawn from them. 
This doesn't mean that Israel and Judah are going to turn in repentance to God. This means that they're going to go back to church, that they're going to sing some hymns and they're going to pass around an offering plate and then they're going to get up and go home and go on about their lives. They're going to do what they normally do, the liturgy of their worship. They're going to offer sacrifices, but they're going to offer sacrifices in the way that they would offer them to Baal. They're going to offer them in the same manner, and they're going to offer them alongside those sacrifices. Amos 5, 21 through 24 says, I hate, I despise your feasts, and I no longer take delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grains, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs to the melody of your harps. I will not listen. But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Is our worship a stench in God's nostrils? Or do we come to God with a, in a spirit like um, Psalm 51, 17, with a broken spirit and a contrite heart? Is that how we come to God to worship? In verse 7, the, the end of the first section, it says, They have dealt faithlessly with the Lord, for they have borne alien children. Now the new moon shall devour them with their fields. Alien children, don't think of some sci-fi connotation here. This is, this is foreign children. And by foreign children, it doesn't mean people who look different from us and speak different from us. It means people who worship different gods. Because you have mixed in, and Dale talked about this last week, how uh, people would visit the, the temple prostitutes, and then they would have children with them. And those children would be raised and reared in this pagan worship. And that's, it sounds a lot like our culture today. Are churches currently teeming with young people? No, they're not. Have we let our culture raise our children? Yeah, to an extent we have. Um, Vadi Bauckham famously says, um, we can't keep sending our children to Caesar for education and be surprised when they come back Romans. That, this is true. Um, when I was young, the, it was a common phrase of, she's letting Madonna raise her children. She's letting MTV raise her children. You know, I would hear other parents say those things about people. And to a large extent, it was true. Um, and then even today. Today, as parents, we're afraid to raise our children. We're afraid to offend them. We're afraid to stand against their sensibilities and, and push against what they desire because we don't want to retard their their emotional growth in some way and that's utter foolishness because what we're doing is we're telling them you need to worship yourself you're good you're good enough when the reality is no apart from christ we're dead in our sins and trespasses the second part of our seven offers a another interpretive struggle um, when it deals with this, this new moon. And there are a lot of different ways to interpret it, a lot of different ways to understand it. I think what makes the most sense in context um, with the rest of the passage is it's talking about a lunar eclipse. And this is a time when the earth is dark. And this is an allusion to spiritual darkness. Have you ever had 
in your heart? Have you ever had in your life a day where you feel very spiritually dark? Is there anything worse than that? Where you reach out in prayer, but you feel in emptiness? Well, this is talking about a, a long-term condition. This is talking about something that covers the land, that's systemic. All of Israel is falling into this darkness because of these things, because they've dealt unfaithfully with the Lord, because they've borne alien children, and, and because they have turned away from God. We move into the second section, which is a sort of a parallel to the first, and it says, Blow the horn in Gibeah, the trumpet in Ramah, the alarm at beth Aven. We will follow you, O Benjamin. Why do you blow a horn or sound an alarm? You're gathering your troops, right? You're, you're, getting, you're getting people together for battle. It's a, it's a battle cry. Let us, let us go together. I think of Gideon and you know, blowing the horns and, and the cry of war. The best that I can tell, Hosea is being sarcastic because Israel and Judah aren't girding themselves for battle. They're slovenly and debaucherous. They desire to fill their bellies and not worship God. So this is mockery. This is Hosea saying, you know, you don't, you don't gird yourselves up. You don't rally together to come and worship God. No. You chase after idols. Verses 9 and 10. Ephraim shall become a desolation in the day of punishment along among the tribes of Israel I make known what is sure the princes of Judah have become like those who move the landmark upon them I will pour out my wrath like water for us these these warnings might seem a little vague um, desolation is a is a a strong word Sometimes we overuse a word in our language and it kind of takes the meaning from it. But if you're a Tolkien fan and you think of the, the desolation of smog, um, that idea that this dragon comes with utter destruction, that's a hint of the desolation that, that Jose is alluding to. This desolation, it likely means um, a prediction of an army, an invading army that is coming, which we know does come to pass. But then we see for, um, for Judah, the wrath like water that puts us, puts us in mind of um, Isaiah 8, 5 through 8. Isaiah 8, 5 through 8 says, The Lord spoke to me again, because this people has refused the waters of Shiloh that flow gently and re rejoice over Razan, the son of Remelah. Therefore, the Lord is bringing up against the waters uh, them the waters of a river a mighty and many a king of Assyria and all his glory and it will rise over all its channels and go over all the banks it will sweep into Judah it will overflow and pass on reaching even uh, to the neck it is its outspread wings will fill the breadth of your land O Emmanuel the princes of Judah are like common thieves they go out and they move the boundary markers it's a very petty thing there's always dispute over the boundary between the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. And so what Hosea is saying, you're, you're like the guy who goes, I knew a guy who they're blacktopping his road. They stopped about 20 feet short of his driveway. He goes out and moves the markers past his driveway. 
What happened? Well, they didn't have enough blacktop to finish, and they didn't know why. Well, he, he moved the markers. It's a common petty theft. And this is what Judah is being compared to. So what's the result of that? Well, you're going to be broken by this mighty river that will wash over you. They'll be washed away for their poor leadership. Verse 11 says, Ephraim is, opposed, is oppressed, crushed in judgment, because it was determined to go after filth. It doesn't say that it stumbled into filth. That's not hard to do. You can be walking along and stepping something gross. No, it was determined to go after filth. It put its head down and gritted its teeth and dove head first into what it knew it should not. What filth do we chase after? This is an important question for us. We live in a, a culture that is very filthy. It's very easy for us to do something that, um, that we ought not do. Whether we, um, whether we, well, I think the, the real thing for us to do, what is our, our attitude toward the things that we do? When we go to do a thing, do we consider, um, is this something that I can get away with? Is this okay? As a youth pastor for 15 years, a lot of young boys and young girls would come and say, so-and-so and I are dating now. I'm like, well, that's wild. You're 14. Where are you going on these dates? But they would say, what is okay for us to do? Is it okay for us to hold hands? Can I kiss Tommy? Is that, is that okay? And we would always say, that's the wrong question. When you go to do a thing, don't ask, Am I getting close to the line of what God says is acceptable? The thing to ask is, does the thing I want to do bring honor to God? That is, that is the metric you need in your relationships, in your work, in your recreation. Does this, does this bring honor to God? Or am I dishonoring God by doing this? Is this, is this something that in my spirit I understand that not my spirit, but the spirit of God in me, that this is not good, then I'll not do it. Israel didn't do that. Israel understood what it was, but they no longer cared. They, they threw God behind them, as it were. Ephraim is being crushed because of what it chased after. These next, two, these next two verses are really poignant. In verse 12, But I'm like a moth to Ephraim, and like dry rot to the house of Judah. Again, these are phrases that don't translate very well to us. If I have a moth in the house, I get the fly swatter. I have one of the kids get the fly swat and, and catch it or kill it and get it out of here. No big deal. If I go out on one of the vehicles and I see one of the tires is starting to come apart a little, uh, it's starting to, the rubber is starting to dry rot, I say, oh, that's right, i got to get tires on this car. And I make a plan to replace tires. Well, that's not the context that we have. And we can see that in verse 13. When Ephraim saw his sickness and Judah his wound, then Ephraim went to Assyria and he sent out to the great king. What this literal translation is, I am the maggot to Ephraim and the gangrene to Judah. Those are different 
words. Those ring differently with us. So Israel and Judah, they are wounded. They are wounded because they've turned away from God. And they have not nice, clean wounds. They have festering wounds. They have infected wounds. The pestilence that God will visit on Israel and on Judah is staggering. Opposition to God, especially those whom he set apart, will never end well for the rebel. God isn't mocked or thwarted in any way. His plans aren't frustrated. God declares himself holy, and we either join him in that declaration, or we suffer the wrath that the enemies of God are due. So again, in 13, when Ephraim saw his sickness, what did he do? Did he turn to God and repent, wash his face? No. He went to Assyria and sent to the great king. So when he needed help, he didn't cry. Israel didn't cry out to God. They cried out to the great king of Assyria. What's the problem with that? But he is not able to cure you or heal your wound. When we think in terms of our, of our spiritual condition, there are, lots, there are lots of self-help books. It is a huge industry. If you want to write a book today, don't write a fantasy book. Write a self-help book because they sell so much better. Why? Because everyone is, is looking for something. They're looking for a Band-Aid because everyone knows in their spirit that they're sick. They know that they have a wound, but they don't understand how to, how to feel it, how to fill it. And we, we go to every extreme. We go to every different place to have our wounds cured, except for the only place that they can be cured. For Israel, they turned to Assyria for aid, not to God. And as mighty as the king of Assyria was, um, they would soon learn uh, to be on the wrong end of him. He, he is not mighty to save. Maybe, um, maybe we've never had a, an infected wound or anything of that nature. Most of us have had COVID. Most of us have had pneumonia. Most of us have had the flu, something along that line. And the result is we're weak. We're weak in our bodies. And it's in this, this illusion, this sickness, this wound that Hosea is, is referring to is a loss of power, a loss of wealth, and inevitably, and inevitably a loss of their kingdom. These are the things that they're suffering under. Um, Israel now and uh, around 800 is when, um, when Judah falls into the same thing. But they, they follow the same path. Assyria can't cure the wounds because Assyria is nothing like God. There is no substitution. Verse 14 says, For I will be like a lion to Ephraim. And like a young lion to the house of Judah, I, even I, will tear and go away. I will carry off and no one will rescue. 
Assyria's power to, to save and to aid is nothing compared to God's power to destroy. Nothing can thwart God's intended wrath. Nothing can turn it aside. No man, no kingdom, no wealth, no desire, no nothing that we chase after can turn aside God's wrath. Ephraim will experience God's wrath in a greater measure than Judah. He has the, the full-grown lion, whereas Judah has the young lion. Both will be carted away for their unfaithfulness. Ephraim will be laid to waste. And God will lay to waste unfaithful nations. We feel like in this country sometimes, we're, we've been here 240-some years, we're invincible. We're the greatest nation. But we could be turned away in an instant. It's not our power that sustains us. It's not our might. It's not our certainly not our goodness. Verse 15 says, I will return again to my place until they acknowledge their guilt and seek my face and in their distress earnestly seek me. So this is interesting because this is kind of unlion-like behavior. We don't see lions rip and tear and then say, okay, I'm going to go rest in my den. And when you're ready to apologize and repent and, and turn, then, um, then you'll be saved. No, but God, as we understand, we also realize that the lion will lay down with the lamb, that ultimately God will bring peace to his people. And who are his people? Those who acknowledge their guilt and seek my face. In their distress, earnestly seek me. So God is bringing distress into, this na into these nations. God is bringing punishment. God is bringing destruction. God is, he has condemned the behavior of both of these nations. It was condemned before they came. Like Jesus says, I, I didn't come to, to bring condemnation. It's already here. Jesus brought the gospel. Jesus brought the message that until you acknowledge your guilt, until you seek my face, and until you turn and seek me, you have no way with me. You're lost to me. This is where Jesus says, Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness, for I never knew you. If we call ourselves Christians, if we take up the name of Christians, there are a few things that we, that we have to understand. We can't, we can't oppose God and impose our will upon him, obviously, but we can't ignore him. We can't act as if God doesn't exist. As Christians, as those who would follow after God, we are to do just this. We are to acknowledge our guilt before him. We are to seek his face. We are to turn from our sin. And for those of us who are in, in leadership, the call for us is to take this gospel to everyone that we have influence to. Because this gospel says you run, you de move determinedly toward filth in your life, 
every day and the result will be destruction. There's no hope for you apart from God against whom you have sinned. And this is the amazing thing because it's against God that we've sinned. And it is because of God that we can repent. If, if you aren't a believer, if you are living outside of God's protection, if you're living outside of God's will, the same falls to you that will, that befell Israel and Judah and every other nation and every other person to come after. If you ignore the will of God, if you ignore who God is, if you don't repent of your sin and turn and seek his face, then it will be like the river that comes and washes you away. This desolation is reserved for those who are enemies of God. So my my call today is for each of us to consider, is our worship a stench in God's nostrils, or do we worship him in spirit and in truth? Is that our desire? Are we a people who acknowledge our guilt before God? Do we seek his face? Do we turn away from the filth that's in our lives? Or do we chase after those things that God hates? And if you're here today and you you aren't a believer, it's the same question. Every day when I wake up, I need the gospel of Jesus Christ. Not, Not that I have to be saved again and again every day, but I need to understand afresh what this gospel means for me. And if if we stand and we call ourselves Christians, then we are in a position of leadership in that we have influence on other people and our the onus is on us to lead people to Christ. So my my prayer is today that we can consider these things. What is my worship like? What is my life like? What am I chasing? after today do i seek to honor god or is my desire for my own things because that way lies destruction let's pray together most gracious god you are worthy of praise you are worthy of worship and father we have not earned or merited in any way your forgiveness. We were born rebels against your kingdom. In your great mercy, Lord, you come. Your wrath is turned aside by your Son who absorbed the, the, your righteous wrath that was due us. And he did so on the cross and he did so in a, in a complete way. So that, Father, if we are in Christ, then there is no wrath for us. That if we are in Christ, when we come to you, our righteousness is covered by Jesus' blood. And you look on us and see his righteousness. And, Father, it's for that great exchange that we worship today. And 
Lord, we pray that as we leave from this place, you would continue to work into us these words from Hosea 5 and these, these warnings for us that apply to our, our personal selves, to our families, to our workplaces, to our nation. That, Father, we need to examine the way that we worship. We need to examine the way that we live our lives. You are worthy of all honor and glory and praise. And it's in the name of your Son that we pray. Amen.